we'll uh, get into it today. Let's move this stuff over first. There we go. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to fellowship together um, as a youth group. Um, we just come from so many different backgrounds and different places, Lord, different cultures, different personalities, different dispositions. But um, the one thing that unites us, Lord, is you um, and the salvation that you have purchased for us through your son, Christ. Let uh, Christ be the focus of this night. Let it be the focus of this message. Let um, him shine brightly in our hearts that we would desire to live lives for him with uh, him as our hope, Lord, that we would run and endure the race of this life, that we may present ourselves before you as people who love you and are excited to spend eternity with you. Thank you for these things, Lord, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. So before I, uh, this uh, next PowerPoint slide shows up, I will tell you that this slide after it also just for a second slowed up and there is a word there. If you saw the word, don't answer the question that I'm about to ask because you will already know it. But if you go to the first uh, slide here, here are four pictures. And what I want you to do is look at these pictures and try and think of a word that unites all of those pictures together, okay? We have a group of adults who are uh, laughing at uh, someone, I assume. I don't know if they're doing something worth laughing at, but they are. Um, there is a very uh, sarcastic man with a very sarcastic response to somebody. Um, there is a picture of a news report of some kind um, of a man hanging off the side of a car. I assume the car is driving on the street. And the last one is a business guy um, who is hanging out on a tricycle, who Sam in particular loves, um, uh, who is riding on a tricycle. Now, anyone out there brave enough to try and guess in one word what all of those photos are representing? Again, if you saw the word, don't answer. <laughs> okay. Any, is that me? No, thank goodness it's not me. Sam. I saw the word. Nope. <laughs> just, and did, well, did everyone, raise your hand if you saw the word. Okay, I'm just going to say it. <laughs> everyone saw it. What's that? Maria didn't see it. Maria, do you want to take a guess? Are you sure? We'll give team a, uh, what, what's that? Oh, never mind then. <laughs> okay. All right, you can go to the next. Okay, Cameron, you want the big, yes, immaturity. The word is immaturity. Um, so we're going to end up talking today about maturity and immaturity. All of these photos, I hope, um, can somehow be reflective of the idea of immaturity. Um, if we were going to be technical about it, maybe not the way we would describe maturity in everyday life, but the, what maturity really is talking about is uh, the process of learning or growing to get to a certain stage in life. That's kind of the, the technical way. But when we talk about maturity and immaturity, what we're actually really talking about is learning to be a functional adult or learning how to behave uh, like an adult. Um, there's actually a slang that some of you guys might actually use to describe maturity or immaturity. It's adulting. When you behave in a certain way, even though you're not an adult yet, you are adulting when you do certain things that we expect adults to do. So if you learn how to pay taxes, when you uh, get your license, if you uh, shoot a gun for the first time, some people tell me, if you are taking college classes, um, the way people describe this is adulting. And one of the things that I hope these photos can represent 
is you can actually look at how someone behaves and you can demonstrate just from the behavior whether they're mature or if they're immature. So for example, the first two pictures at the top, the adults pointing and laughing and the gentleman being sarcastic to somebody else. Um, if you are insulting someone or being mean to someone, you might very naturally point at them and say, well, that's pretty immature. And the reason is because on the opposite side of things in maturity, maturity would dictate the expectation that we have in adults is a certain level of kindness, is a certain level of morality. And that's important not just in terms of what we believe is right or wrong, but even for a society to work properly, people have to behave in a certain way towards each other. They have to be kind in order to be productive. They have to uh, get along in order to get things done. That's kind of an expectation, and when that's not met, we call those people immature. Um, responsibility is another big sign of immaturity. Uh, the gentleman who's on the bike, the business guy um, who's hanging out on a bike, we would look at that behavior, if we know he's a business guy, and we'd say it's immature because the expectation is that he's supposed to be doing businessy things, and instead he's doing entertainment things. He's entertaining himself. And we call that immature because maturity would say that you have certain responsibilities that you need to complete. And if you do not fulfill responsibilities that you have been given, we would define you as immature. And then the last one is kind of indicative, the gentleman hanging off the side of the car, is that uh, when you look at someone doing something immature, if it's super immature, um, it's not just that you look at that guy and you're like, oh, that's not very smart. Uh, you look at that guy and you say, oh my gosh, he's going to kill himself. And that's because a certain level of immaturity is incredibly dangerous. Um, if you are not functioning as an adult, and you are functioning so differently than an adult should, it's not only irresponsible, but it's dangerous. It has real safety concerns and can be very, very dangerous if you do not fulfill the expectations you've been given. And really all four of those things in talking about immaturity are supposed to point to one very simple thing, which is that maturity is important. If you are talking to people who aren't even believers, they will also agree that maturity is important. And what we're really going to talk today is that for Christians, maturity is not only important, it is actually the goal of every single Christian's life. Now, to give you a biblical definition of maturity, the Greek word that is used in Colossians 1.28 for maturity means complete. If you are a mature Christian, it means you are a complete Christian. First of all, that means that you receive the gospel, that your salvation is completed, but it actually means more than that. If you are a complete Christian, you have not only received the gospel, but you are also transformed by the gospel. The gospel is a message you've received, and consequently, you live out the gospel. It affects what you do and what you say and how you think. And because Christ has completed us through the gospel, a complete Christian then goes on to live out a complete life by growing. That's why maturity means growing. A complete Christian, a mature Christian, is someone who actually grows. Now, Paul, in his section that we are going to cover today, has been talking about ministry. He's been talking about the motivations that he has had as a believer in ministry. What he talked about last uh, week when we were in verses 24 to 27 is that 
believers in Christ are motivated to do ministry by representing Christ and sharing his gospel as it's been revealed from the Old Testament and then in Christ in the New Testament. And the ministry is not just something Paul is supposed to do, but something that every Christian is supposed to do. And now as he detours in verse 28 and verse 29 to talk about maturity, what Paul wants to explain is not only that all of us as individuals need to live out a complete Christian life, need to live out a mature Christian life, but we are called to take up the ministry of maturity. What Paul is going to explain today is not only that you need to grow in maturity, but that you should desire in your heart for other people to be mature. The way Paul explains that in verse 28 is by saying this, that our goal for the Christian life is to, verse 28, present everyone mature in Christ. What he means by saying that is he says, my goal is for every Christian to one day stand before Christ and be confident that they lived a life of growing in Christ. He wants everyone one day, when they die, standing before Jesus to say to him, Jesus, you have not only completed my salvation, but you have transformed my whole life. Your gospel was my mission statement in every single day that I lived in light of your grace. My desire was to please you more and more. The Christian life is not only about living as a mature believer, but helping others grow in maturity so that they would be confident before Christ that they grew in Christ. And Paul wants to emphasize here too that that is not only his ministry. Just like we talked about last week, this is for everyone. And you'll know that because if you look in verse 28, he stresses the word everyone three times. He says that we warn everyone and we teach everyone because we want to present everyone. And when he talks about who is doing that, he says twice, that is we. That is our job. What Paul is doubling down on from last week is that every Christian should be devoted towards following Christ and helping others to follow Christ. So what we're really going to look today is have, um, we're going to look at today how we learn to take confidence in taking up the ministry of maturity that we are supposed to put into effect and put effort into supporting and assisting other believers in their maturity. And really that's gonna be pretty easily broken down in verses 28 and 29 in two ways. Number one, in verse 28, it explains what is the ministry of maturity, what it is, what it looks like. And in verse 29, he's going to explain how it is possible, how the ministry of maturity is possible. So the first one in verse 28 explains what the ministry of maturity looks like. If you desire other people to grow as mature believers, what do you need to do? And Paul explains in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He makes it very simple for us by just explaining four words for us. He says, the ministry looks like proclaiming, warning, teaching, and using wisdom. And really, it kind of seems like we don't need a sermon on this because they're very, very simple. I think all of you, in some capacity, could give me an explanation of all four of those words, what it looks like to proclaim, what it looks like to warn, what it looks like to teach, 
and even what it looks like to use wisdom. But even though those are very simple concepts, the problem that Paul is seeing is that this is not the reality for many Christians. If we actually not look at Colossians for a second, just look in our own world, many, many so-called uh, churches, even those churches who really do love Christ, have a very, very difficult time with this ministry. And really the reality that Paul brings out from this text is there is one fundamental reason why, which is people take the focus off of Christ. The pressure that we really have in our world today is to look at all sorts of different methods or different resources like podcasts or other pastors or really excellent teachers or really excellent ministry goals like creating structures and creating conferences and all sorts of things. But all of those things become very overwhelming and many pastors seem to be falling out of ministry even and all sorts of other things happen because that's what happens when the focus is taken off of Christ and put onto anything else. And really what Paul wants to do is not freak us out with this kind of ministry. What he really wants to do is simplify the ministry of helping others mature in the simplest way possible. And he begins that by saying, we proclaim him. We proclaim him. Now to proclaim means to make something known publicly. And it also means when you do that publicly, you're doing that through praise. You're doing that through worship. There's joy and excitement involved in that. But most importantly, what Christ is saying is there's a, or what Paul is saying rather, is there's a focus here. What he's explaining is that when you are doing proclamation, you are focusing upon the only one who is worthy of eternal attention and praise, and that is Christ. Now, if you remember a little bit about the context of Colossians, the Colossian Christians were being tempted to not focus on Christ. Now, people hadn't come in and told them Christ is useless, Christ is not important, but what they've done rather is they've made Christ less than what he was and raised up many other things to be equal with him. What they were explaining is you could be complete, you could be mature with more than just Christ. They were saying there were other gods, other mystical and spiritual practices that you could perform and other gods you could appease in order to be complete. They were explaining there were other people you could pay attention to, other teachers who you could learn their information, and that would make you mature and that would make you complete just as good as Christ could. But what Paul is trying to explain is that all of those things will shake you in such a terrible, terrible way because they are taking your eyes off of the foundation of Christ and putting you on a foundation that is shaky and cannot support your faith. Um, in a letter that he wrote parallel actually to Colossians in Ephesians, Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 and 16. He said, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The whole purpose of the book of Colossians is to help believers understand that completion and maturity is only found in Jesus Christ. And that was why in verses 15 to 20 that we looked at a number of weeks ago, everything is coming back to a greater and grander vision of who Christ is. 
In 15 to 20, he explains Christ is God. Christ is the creator of everything. Christ is the reason everything was created. And Christ is our only hope of finding purpose and meaning in our lives. And in verse 23, he explains that even though we used to be alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds, it was through Christ that we were reconciled into this plan that Christ has for the whole world, that Christ was going to fix everything through himself so that, in verse 17, he would be preeminent in everything, which means he would be first place in everything. And that's really what he's talking about when he talks about proclaiming him, that Christ would have first place in our hearts so that we would understand where maturity comes from. One of the greatest passages in the New Testament on maturity uh, actually explains the same thing, and that is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What Paul is really explaining in that verse is saying this, we were blind and through Christ now we see. And now that we can see Christ as we continue to look at Christ, we become more like Christ. If you look anywhere else as your primary means of completion, nothing will change. But if you are constantly looking at Christ, you will be transformed to look more like Christ. And that is what it means to be complete in Christ. And all of this really, again, is just to take the pressure off of this ministry. If you think about it, if we were supposed to draw attention to ourselves, if we were proclaiming ourselves, this ministry would be incredibly more difficult. It that was the case, then we would have to keep up appearances of our own goodness and our own excellence, and we would eventually have to lie to convince people that we were worthy of all of their attention. That would be proclaiming ourselves. But we proclaim him. We proclaim the all-powerful, almighty Savior who is transforming the whole world because he has the answers and he has the grace. And we are simply products. We are vessels of his grace. And so really what Paul is saying here is that the ministry isn't dependent on me being a perfect Christian. Really, all this ministry is about is about pointing people to a perfect Savior. It means our job isn't to be a perfect model. Our job is only supposed to be pointing towards Christ, who himself is the perfect model. And as we all look at him together, we grow together in him. Paul explains this beautifully in a passage that I wish we could get deeper into, but he explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the only thing that he came to do is preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't come with a 10-step plan of all the things you need to do to be saved. Everything that he talked about, even if it seemed unrelated to Christ, was all about Christ. And the point of that is supposed to help us understand that we have a lot of relief in being uh, people who make mistakes, people who fail because it's not about us and it's about giving attention to him. And even in our weaknesses, we can still do this ministry faithfully. Now, as Paul has explained uh, proclamation, he kind of doubles this down on that with his next two words because his next two words are really just two sides of the coin that is proclaiming. 
Paul explains that as we proclaim him, we warn everyone and we teach everyone. That first word, warning everyone, is something that I think, again, we understand pretty well. It means to help people understand the dangers that lay ahead of them. If you think about your whole life as walking down a spiritual road, you can imagine that as you learn about Christ and his commandments, that spiritual road is being dotted with various signs. Signs that say, do not enter. Signs that say, danger ahead. And what we are doing when we're warning people is helping other people understand that those signs on the spiritual road are warning them to go away from one path and be detoured to another path, a path that leads directly to maturity and completeness in Christ. The literal word actually there for warning means to fix something properly in your mind. So if you want to think about warning in this way, what warning really is, is explaining to someone, I see this behavior in your life, and what that means is that Christ or one of his commandments is not fixed in the right place. The reason you are going after this kind of sin is because this commandment you don't believe, or the reason you're going after this kind of pleasure that won't satisfy is because you don't believe Christ will satisfy you, and so you look for satisfaction in this. And I think even as we talk about that, I think any person who's ever talked to people or any person who's ever been rejected by people would understand that warning is not fun. Warning is uncomfortable. This world is constantly complaining about Christians warning people because they do not want to be warned. And in your life, if you are a faithful Christian, I can promise you that you will be at some point accused of being judgmental or unkind or impatient. But the reality that Paul is explaining in the ministry of warning is that we need to care about the redemption of others more than our reputation. We need to care about maturity more than popularity. If you remember the picture of the guy hanging off the car from the introduction, immaturity is dangerous. Immaturity is a dangerous business. And if you see other believers consistently ignoring signs in their life, or constantly ignoring the commands of Christ or Christ himself, we need to warn those people. Because after a certain amount of immaturity, it may not be that someone is immature. It may be that they do not have Christ. If Christ is the means of all spiritual growth, then we are to warn people when they seem to be following a completely different path that is not leading to growth in Christ. And the more we talk about that, I hope that one of the things that's being evident about warning people is that a true, godly, and sincere warning comes from a heart that cares for people. If you really warn someone, it is coming from a heart that cares for people. And if you look at that word through Paul's ministry, you'll see that that was definitely the thing on his mind. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Paul says this to the elders in Ephesus. He says, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now that word admonish is the same word for warn, and Paul is explaining that he warned people through tears. That means that a godly warning is passionate. Paul was emotional because he feared when he saw Christian brothers and sisters acting a certain way that they might be falsely saved, or they were leading themselves into disaster. And so Paul, when he showed all his cards to the Christians, they saw that all of them said, concerned for your situation. 
Warnings did not come from a place of hypocritic, uh, uh, being a hypocrite. They didn't come from a place where he didn't care about them. A Christian warning is one that demonstrates passionate, godly concern for someone's situation. We can see another example of this in Romans 15, 14, where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now that last phrase, that last word, to instruct, is again the same word for warning. And what Paul's explaining is, is that if I warn someone who is a believer and they take that warning, not only are they filled with goodness and filled with knowledge, but it actually reproduces in their life. When you demonstrate godly concern for someone by warning them, a real believer will take that and they will help warn others. And so the ministry of warning is actually one that reproduces and it compiles on each other like a snowball going down a hill and more and more people are helped in knowing how to minister. And as Romans 15, 14 says, they are literally filled with goodness. One other clarification that might be helpful, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Again, that word admonish is the same word for warn, and it demonstrates the motivation behind warning someone. Warning someone is never, ever to put them to shame. It is never to make light of their mistakes, to make yourself feel better, or to make them feel worse about themselves. When you give a true, godly, sincere warning to somebody else, it actually demonstrates that you believe that we are family, and we would never, ever let a family member walk willingly into danger. And so as we alert them to their destructive or sinful behavior, we are also demonstrating to them that this is all coming from a heart of concern and love for their situation and that they have all the hope in the world to get out of that situation and be put back upon a stable path towards Christ. So the ministry of warning is part of proclaiming Christ and is an essential part towards the ministry of maturity. Then Paul goes on to say the other side of proclamation is not just warning, but teaching. And again, teaching is very, very simple, unless I asked any one of you, how would you feel comfortable teaching equipping hour this Sunday? If I asked that, I could almost guarantee nobody would want to raise their hands. And obviously, there's a couple reasons for that. One would be, we just don't like public speaking. One would be, well, I don't have enough time to prepare. But it's good to ask ourselves if maybe one of the reasons we wouldn't want to do that is because we feel uncomfortable teaching Jesus to other people. Now evangelism has always been something, especially in youth ministry, that's one of the top 10 most nerve-wracking things. And that's something you grow through experience. But it's also something terrifying because many Christians don't think they ever know enough about Christ. We always want something about apologetics. We always want something about evangelism because we never feel like we know enough about Christ. But the reality is, and the confidence you should take, is that if you know the gospel, you can teach the gospel. If you know the message that has saved you, you can teach that to someone else. And the effectiveness of your approach is not going to be dependent on all this thing that you know. It's really going to be dependent upon the same power that saved you, which means it's dependent on the Holy Spirit. It is not dependent on you. It's totally dependent on the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. 
Jesus' disciples were also nervous about this when Jesus was leaving them. They were worried about teaching people. And Jesus helped uh, quell some of their fears by explaining to them in Luke 12, 12. When they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Knowing the power behind teaching doesn't exclusively come from you knowing everything about a subject. It comes from the passion you have for Christ, which has been given to you, which is an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. So take confidence in that as you are told to teach other people. Now, the other obvious thing that you should know is that you not only have the power of the Holy Spirit, you have all of the tools you need at your disposal, which is literally the word of God. The New Testament also calls it the word of Christ. I remember being in seminary, I went to so many different pastors and teachers and elders to try and get all these techniques, all these strategies to try and be a better teacher and a better communicator. And one of the pastors that I knew back in Canada always reminded me every single time when I was asking for the best book to read or the best strategy to approach someone who was struggling with sin, he would remind me every single time, keep reading the Gospels, keep reading the Gospels, keep reading the Gospels, because it is never, ever to, maybe I can rephrase that, it is never, ever wrong to read more and more of Christ. You need to look more and more at Christ. And if you read the Gospels, that's exactly what Christ is doing. He is teaching people so people will know how to teach. The whole Gospel of Luke that we're learning on Sunday morning is stressing this fact. In Luke 4.14, explains that Christ taught in the synagogues. In 4.31, he says that he was teaching on the Sabbath. On, in chapter 5, verse 3, he says he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. In 5.17, it says one of those days he was teaching. In 6.6, 6, it says that he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And after it stresses Jesus' teaching so long, it eventually gets to Luke 11.1, 1, where the disciples ask Christ, Lord, teach us. The reality is that if you are someone who cultivates in your heart a desire to be teachable, if you want to be taught, then you are being molded into someone who would be gifted at teaching. Not just because of your personality, not just because you have a specific spiritual gift of teaching, but if you love to learn, you will be able to grow in your teaching. It comes from time and it comes from practice, but it really comes from a heart that loves to be taught by Christ. And as you desire to be taught by Christ, that will naturally come out of you and it will affect the lives of people around you. So we are called to proclaim Christ by warning and teaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ. And the last section that he adds in verse 28 is this, that we are to do all three of these things with all wisdom. Now we could literally talk about wisdom forever, so I'll just sum up wisdom in one very quick phrase, which is this. Wisdom is putting knowledge into action. Wisdom is putting knowledge into action. Wisdom means that you learn things and then you apply them. And it means that you are learning constantly how to apply them properly in a broken and confusing world. What it means to be wise is to recognize that knowledge needs to be applied at the right time with the right intention and right behavior and right purposes. It means understanding that not every single situation you come across is black and white. It means understanding that Christ being center in your life results in carefulness and caution, 
and consideration of the person that you are proclaiming to, warning, and teaching. And because so much of what we're talking about is dealing with words, I thought if there was one passage that might sum up how to speak uh, wisely, it would be Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 is really helpful for this. Ephesians 4.29 says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Really, Paul explains there that uh, proclaiming warning and teaching, all these verbal things, doing that wisely can really be summed up this way. It means considering what to speak, when to speak, and why you are speaking it. Every time you are trying to proclaim, warn, and teach Christ to someone else, ask yourself, what am I saying, when am I saying it, and why am I saying it? He says that no corrupting language should come out of your mouth. That's what to speak. Don't say anything that you think would dissolve the soul of the person in front of you. Don't say anything, but that would lift them up, that would build them up, that would lead to them looking away from their situation but looking as Christ as the supreme, sufficient savior of their lives who will willingly demonstrate grace to them. If you are pointing them towards Christ, then you are speaking what builds up. But then Paul adds that it needs to fit the occasion. That's when to speak. You need to speak when it seems appropriate to say something. Now, the way that kind of this works out is that you're talking to someone who has a situation and you spit out the very first verse you can think of or you basically say the only verse that you think you have memorized, like a Romans 28, 28 kind of is applied to every single situation. And that's an amazing verse and all verses are amazing, but not every verse fits every single occasion. Part of the reason you read the Bible isn't just for your knowledge, it's so you can help other people's situations as well, that you can speak into their circumstances and help them see where the Bible fits into their life. Now, learning how to speak as it fits the occasion does take time and practice, but if you begin to consider it now, you'll be way steps ahead with so many people. It will remove stubbornness in your heart and replace it with humbleness that only comes from Christ when you're considering what to speak and when to speak it. But the last reason, he says, is why you speak it. Ephesians 4.29 says that we speak what gives grace to those who hear. Your speech should be saturated with grace. It should be saturated with the knowledge that you yourself are a sinner, but you have a great savior. And so the number one word on your lips is grace. It is there is mercy, there is forgiveness, there is hope. Now that involves warning, it's not all positivity, but the end of every conversation is there is hope and hope is in Christ. Using wisdom means always trying to think how to explain Christ, when it would be appropriate to point to an aspect of Christ, and reminding them that everything that you speak is not because you are amazing, but because Christ is an amazing Savior. So that is all of what the ministry looks like in a nutshell. It's proclaiming Christ, pointing people to him who is the source of everything good, Warning people, which means pointing out where they are walking away from Christ and then teaching them, putting them back on the road towards Christ and using wisdom, applying things correctly in a broken and confusing world. But because all of that does seem very intimidating, and I think Paul knew it sounded intimidating, he actually sums up this ministry 
with verse 29. And verse 29 explains how this ministry is possible. And this section will be a lot shorter than the section we just went to because it's very straightforward. He explains how this ministry is possible. Paul explains, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul first explains that this ministry is something that he toils and struggles for. That word toil refers to working until you are exhausted. And the word struggle has something very similar to that. It means to agonize or to labor for. It means you are constantly putting effort into a particular goal. What Paul is explaining is that the ministry of maturity is not like lifting a deadlift up above your head for five seconds and dropping the bar. That is not what the ministry of maturity looks like. It looks much more like a marathon. It is longer. It is more straining. It makes your back hurt at periods, and it makes you sweat. It is a ministry that takes a sustained effort. And what Paul is not trying to do is freak us out. What he's really trying to do is offer a challenge. One of my old Bible study leaders who preached on the same passage summed up verse 29 like this. How far are you willing to go to help someone else look more like Christ? How far are you willing to go to make someone else look like Christ? If we were, and me as well, completely involved in this as well, if we were to look at ourselves, intimidation isn't always the reason why we're worried about representing Christ. Sometimes it's just because we're lazy. Sometimes it's just because we actually know we could put effort into it, but we put effort into other things. And we put effort into good things that are fun. We put effort into airsoft matches and cross-country races and soccer games and writing papers and preparing for college and preparing for post-education, preparing for work, designing technology and organizing hangouts with our friends, designing, entertaining, reading, writing, playing. We struggle for so many of those things. And all of those things are fine and all of those things are worthy of putting a certain amount of effort into. But the question really is this. Do we put the same effort into our friendships? Do we put that same effort specifically into our Christian friendships? We can often think Christian friendships are easy because everyone's already in Christ, but our Christian friendships are honestly sometimes the ones we put the least effort into. The reality is that as believers, We aren't just supposed to be in Christ. We are supposed to grow in Christ. And the foundation of our Christian friendships is to look at one another and encourage each other to continue to grow in Christ. Remember that Paul, for his ministry, for the most part, was constantly encouraging churches. He wrote all the New Testament to people who were already Christians. But he put serious effort into that because he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The question that we're really asking is, would I be gladly exhausted as many nights as I can so that other people would have more joy in Christ? And the reason Paul is so confident in not only telling people to take up this responsibility and to continue with this responsibility is because this responsibility is very possible. 
Paul has 100% confidence that every single Christian can do this and do it for the rest of their lives. And that is for this reason, because all of God's energy powerfully works within us. Verse 29 says, Paul toils and struggles with all of his energy, with all of God's energy, with all of God's power in action, with all of God's impossible strength that created the world and rose Jesus from the dead. Paul does ministry with that power. And that power powerfully works within him. That power powerfully works out in not only saving people, but completing people by growing people in Christ. And that power is available for every single Christian to take advantage of. That every Christian can take complete ownership of this ministry of maturity because you have the power of God accessible to you, which has been proved because you believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, then the Holy Spirit has interrupted your life and put Christ at the center because he is the center of the whole world. And he has transformed your life in such an amazing way that you can then help others do the same thing. That you might be a vessel of God's grace for the rest of your life with joy because God's power powerfully rests and works within you. Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That verse is actually the verse that inspired a song many of you guys know, yet not I, but through Christ in me. What that's explaining is that we use our efforts for the maturity of others but we are drawing upon the immeasurable depth of God's energy and power that he has joyfully given us for others' benefit, for our maturity, for their maturity, and for God's glory. That's why that thought is so powerful in the author of Hebrews' heart when he ends his epistle in Hebrews. In verse 13, 21, he ends his epistle by saying that God equips you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we end with this, as we think of this, I want you to look at just two uh, final photos. Uh, I'm not exactly sure when they'll come up, but um, the photos are going to be of two Olympic runners. Uh, Their names are Isaiah Jewett and Nigel Amos. And you may not have seen them, but they ran a number of races. These photos were taken from the 800-meter race at the last Tokyo Olympics. And as has happened in many times in the Olympics, um, coming around a corner of the race, as they were exhausted and racing a bunch uh, with many other people, they ended up falling in the middle of the race. Um, It was very difficult to see who tripped over whom, but the reality was serious defeat and frustration and impatience and even despair. And that's only normal when you've worked so hard for so much of your life for this one moment, and that moment results in failure. Training and preparation for the Olympics, and now all of those medals finished. And you would think that that would show up on the faces of these two guys, but It actually didn't. What's beautiful, even in 10 or 20 seconds after they fell, they ended up looking at each other, reaching their hands out for each other, grabbing alongside, putting their arms around another, and excitedly and joyfully still walking to 
the end of the finish line. And I think that's helpful for us because that is actually a very realistic view of the Christian life. We struggle to be the best at so many things, but in some of the most important, some of the most critical moments of our life, we seem to fail and we seem to fall. But when you remind yourself actually that winning isn't the most important thing, getting to the end is not the most important thing, that your life is built around bringing others to the end, you can actually get up from those failures, look at Christ, and continue to the end with joy. No matter how tragic and how painful all sorts of periods in your life become, you can consider that the ministry of helping others mature in Christ, that they would see Christ and then grow in Christ, is not only possible, but it is promised for every single person who is in Christ. And that is really, as we go into the Christmas break with only one sermon left uh, in Colossians, I hope that that can be the goal for this ministry, that we would prioritize helping each other to the end of the Christian life not trying to get the prize by ourselves, but bringing others to experience and live in light of the prize. That we would give up the riches of this world, that we would help other people get to the end, that we would take every single Friday night and every opportunity we have with our friends to be able to prioritize Christ as the greatest life that could possibly be lived. That we would strategize not to be extraordinary believers, that we would demonstrate instead ordinary faithfulness, that we would simply, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, we would look to Christ as the founder and perfecter of our faith, and we'd recognize and take comfort in the promises he has given us, that equipping that he has given us and the strength that he has given us, and that we would understand that as he leads us and ministers to us, all of these things are a guarantee that we will get to the end, and that we have absolutely everything we need to help other people get to the end. For that, we are called to toil and struggle through his energy that he powerfully works in us so that we might present everyone mature in Christ and we may present everyone mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just the attention that you've given us to your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have to look at it. Thank you for all of the mistakes that could have been made, all of the uh, attention that might be taken off of you in this world we might um, have removed from us by your Holy Spirit and you might focus us once again on your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and forgiveness to us that we would uh, live a life that would be pleasing to you, not because we are perfect, but because you are perfect, because you have saved us. Thank you for the opportunities that you have before us. We pray we would walk in step with your spirit and that we would have your son Christ firmly in our hearts, that we would be able to be faithful in those ministries, that we would not be worried about how amazing we are, but rather that we would look at you, that we would prioritize you, that we would be satisfied with the completeness you have brought to every aspect of our lives. And therefore, we might present ourselves as a living sacrifice before you and present others before you, that we would live our lives in light of the end, that since you have given us such a great and sure and steadfast salvation, we could dedicate our lives, no matter the cost, for other people to be saved, that other people might not only see you and be converted to you, but might continue to grow in you. 
And thank you for revealing in your word that that is the greatest life possible. And we pray that you would grow that desire in our hearts every day. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for your attention and your um, note-taking and all of those kinds of things. Uh, I always uh, honestly look down at the timer and I'm like, that's longer than I wanted to go. So thank you guys for your patience and your...